But thanks for being here. My name is Mark. If I uh, haven't met you before, thanks for coming to this session. Uh, before we start with a prayer, let's do some admin. So there's a couple of things you can download to help you for this hour and the future. So the first scan is giving you a, a chart. It looks like this. It's basically the New Testament, the reconciliation and chronology between the book of Acts and the epistles. So if you're interested in see how that comes together... You can download that. There's also a few physical copies available. There was Stephanie in the very back. So if you want one of those, just raise your hand and she will or somebody will help her. Can somebody help her so she doesn't run around everywhere? So she can give that physical copy in case you hate QR codes. Um, the second document, is everybody good with this one before I move on? Okay, this document is more involved. This is a Word document. So if you are a if you have an iPad or a computer or a phone and you want to type as I speak, nope, sorry, go back. We don't want that. This guy. So this is going to give you 18 pages of notes, so a lot more detail of what I'll be talking about. So the first one is just a chronology chart, okay? This one, and that, that you can use in the future. Uh, we'll talk about most of the information on that chart this afternoon, this morning, but the second one gives you more detail, and so you may not have to write as much if you take notes. Um, I'll do my best to speak not like Abner Chow does, where nobody can keep up, uh, including himself. I think he gets lost as well, <laughs> how fast he speaks. But at the same time, I know that there's a lot of content to cover. So hopefully that's helpful. So this session, in case you're still wondering, this is what it's called, The Life of Saul or Paul. And um, we'll spend some time kind of putting the pieces together from the New Testament evidence all the way into early church history. Let me pray for us as we begin, and we'll get going. Lord God, we do thank you for this morning, for the opportunity to be here with other believers and to fellowship and to worship you. I pray that this session is beneficial to all of us, not just as a biographical sketch of who Paul was, but even more importantly that the lessons that we can learn from his faithfulness, we would apply to our own lives. Help us to process this material in a way that is most pleasing to you, and then our lives would change in response to what your truth expects of us. We pray this to the honor of your name. Amen. Well, we are going to spend some time in the book of Acts, so if you want to go anywhere, go to the book of Acts. The passages that are more extensive, I've, got, I've put on the screen so you may not have to flip as much. Um, but I do want to make sure that you know where we're going to be spending most of our time together. Imagine yourself in the year 35, A.D. 35, and you're in Jerusalem, and you are watching a mob form as it makes its way outside the city walls. As you begin to look through the mob, you see a man being dragged outside the city, and all of a sudden, you see that man being stoned. You can see the Mount of Olives in the horizon, and you can see a group forming because there's a lot of commotion, and you wonder what's happening. And so as you watch the individual being stoned, you see the first stone hit his shoulder, and it kind of ricochets off of him, hitting the ground and creating some dust. But then the next stone actually hits him in the chest, and he collapses, gasping for air. As the next few stones hit him, he slowly collapses until he's unable to get up. As you look around and you scan the crowd, you see a man in the distance, kind of watching the whole thing. You make your way over to him just to ask what he's doing and what is the commotion all about. 
And you come up to him, and you ask him, what has this man done that there is this execution? And he says to you, he's a blasphemer. He thinks that Jesus is the Jewish Messiah. As you look back at the crowd and you see the man still being stoned, it's hard for you to watch the blood and the cracking bones. And then as the whole event ends, the crowd dissipates. And you look around and there's almost no one left except for that man in the distance. And you make your way back to him and you ask him, what's your name? And he says, my name is Saul, Saul of Tarsus. This is the first time we meet Saul, and that is in the book of Acts chapter 7, at the very end of chapter 7. This is the introduction to the man who would ultimately change world history. You see, as you consider Saul, from that event at the end of chapter 7, the stoning of Stephen, the first Christian martyr, Saul isn't simply a bystander. He isn't simply an observer. We have some evidence from other Greek writings to indicate that Saul perhaps orchestrated the entire event. He was in charge. The indication for that hypothesis comes in the fact that the men who were stoning Stephen were laying their robes at his feet. It could be interpreted as an act of homage. In other words, Paul is too important to get his hands dirty and bloody in the murder of Stephen. He would just watch the event that he organized. Now, as you turn into the next chapter, you see Paul rising and becoming more and more influential in Jewish history. As you look back at the life of Paul, and especially the first century, and the influence that he's had on Christendom, Paul has been claimed by Catholics as a saint. He has been claimed by the reformers as a theologian, as a man who's clarified for us justification by faith, as a man who talks about salvation by grace through faith. He wrote the most theological book in the New Testament, the book of Romans. Certain New Testament scholars actually conclude that Paul is the founder of Christianity, not to in any way insult Jesus as the one who came first to proclaim the gospel, but they look at him, New Testament scholars, as the founders, the one who actually established the system of Christianity. He wrote 13 books in the New Testament more than any other writer. If you believe Hebrews is written by him, then that gives him 14 books. He started churches in the Roman Empire from east to west covering most of the metropolitan cities in the the Roman Empire. He ministered for 30 years, covered about 10,000 miles, not by plane, not by train, and not by car, mostly by foot and by ship. He had about 100 associates in the New Testament that are connected to his ministry. So he was a pastor, he was a discipler, he was an author, he was a church planter. But before Paul played this role, he was a mercenary. He was a murderer. And he was the most feared individual by the first Christians. Because the first introduction that I mentioned in chapter 7, and then going into chapter 8, and into the beginning of chapter 9 of the book of Acts, Paul is presented as a murderer of Christians. Paul was born about the year 1, A.D. 1. Jesus would have been about five or six years old when Paul was born. 
And because Jesus spent most of his time in Galilee, and Paul was from Tarsus, they never intersected paths. The first time we know that Paul saw Jesus, that was on the road to Damascus in Acts chapter 9. As we look at church history, there are some descriptions of what Paul may have looked like. So we have a few individuals writing about his description. And so in the second century, this is what is written of his physical appearance. A man of small stature with a bald head and bow uh, legs who carried himself well. His eyebrows met in the middle. He was a unibrow. (laughs) And his nose was rather large and he was full of grace for at times he seemed a man and at times he had the face of an angel. In the 6th century, it says he had a thick gray beard, light bluish eyes, and a fair and florid complexion, and that he was a man who often smiled. In the 14th century, it's added that his beard was rather pointed, his large nose was handsomely curved, and his body was slight and rather bent. So as you, read, as you hear this description, it doesn't sound like a very attractive individual, does he? But what you have to understand is that in the ancient times, This is exactly how the first emperor of Rome is described, like that first description. He also had a crooked nose. It was a sign of nobility. There's some overlap. I am happy that being short was not a problem in the ancient times, you know, standing at a height of 5'8 over here. It wasn't an absolute requirement to be important back in the day. The unibrow throws me off. not sure what to do with that. But he was a man who was actually drawn in the catacombs. And so the pictures that we find of Paul in the catacombs agree to some of these descriptions. In 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 10, it says, his personal presence is unimpressive. So we know that he did not enter the room at 6-6 and everybody turned their attention to him. His physical presence was not impressive. And then you read in Acts chapter 17 that this was the man who upset the world. Paul's heritage goes back to the city of Tarsus. And you can kind of see on the map where Tarsus would have been located. In the Roman Empire, you can see Israel down below in the south, Syria just below that. And then you make your way over to Greece, and then off the map to the left would be Rome. The city of Tarsus is in modern-day Turkey. It had a population back in the day of a half a million people. And the city, the city itself has a history of 6,000 years, one of the, most, the oldest cities in the world. The Assyrians, the Persians, Alexander the Great, Julius Caesar, Cicero, Mark Anthony, and Cleopatra all had some connection with the city of Tarsus. The Romans, Rome's first emperor, Augustus, his two tutors came from the city of Tarsus, and because of that, he favored Tarsus. He gave them freedom from taxation. He gave them Roman citizenship to every single person who lived in Tarsus. Tarsus was a booming metropolis. It was famous for education, for culture, for commerce. It was a coastal city, which meant lots of businesses came to it as ships were moving cargo from city to city. It was a busy city. Strabo, who was an ancient geographer, says that the residents of Tarsus were busy pursuing culture, philosophy, liberal arts, and all sorts of education. In some sense, Tarsus was like L.A. We don't have the greatest Ivy League university in America. We don't have Harvard or Yale. But we do have Stanford. We have UCLA. We have the University of Second Choice. And so we have those schools here as well. (laughs) Fellow Bruins, you agree with that, correct? Come on. Raise your hand if you're a fellow Bruin. And you, yes, there's like five of us. Come on. I'm not asking about USC people. 
Tarsus was like that. It wasn't Rome, it wasn't Athens, but it was kind of like Calais. Influential in, the, in America, even though it's not the number one city. So growing up in Tarsus, Paul would have been well-respected, he would have learned how to be cosmopolitan, and he would have been educated. He would have studied arithmetic, philosophy, literature, oratory, and religion. His family probably settled there in the year 170 BC. That's the first time we find out that there's a Jewish colony that arises in the city of Tarsus. And at that point, most likely his ancestors received the Roman citizenship because they would have helped the Roman military in that area. They were foreigners, they were Jews, but they would have gotten that citizenship either because they were extremely wealthy, which is a possibility being from the family of tent makers, and the Roman military would have needed the tents significantly as they made their way through the Roman Empire, conquering and so forth. But also in Tarsus, there was a high demand for a special garment that was made there. And so most likely being tent makers, they were also involved in that industry. So they would have been a well-to-do family. As it pertains to religious beliefs, Paul grew up in a very religious home. Philippians 3.5 says that he was circumcised on the eighth day. He was of the nation of Israel. He was of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee. He would have grown up in a staunch Jewish home. He would have been homeschooled like some of you at the beginning of his life. And then he made his way to other education. We'll talk about that in a minute. His father was a Pharisee. He says, I was a son of the Pharisees in Acts 26. He says that. And because his father was a, a Roman citizen, that citizenship would have been extended to him when he was born. He says he was a Hebrew of the Hebrews. A first century Jewish theologian by the name of Philo tells us that the Hebrew of the Hebrews indicates that their first language wasn't Greek, it was Aramaic. That's how they distinguish between Hebrew of the Hebrews or just a Hebrew, those who are more Hellenized. He was circumcised, he was an Israelite, he was from the tribe of Benjamin, an elite tribe. The first king, Saul, came from the tribe of Benjamin. Saul would have been named after the first king of Israel. And the Benjamites were loyal to David after the split of the kingdom. In regards to his primary education, his parents chose to do something unique. He would have been taught the Jewish customs, the Jewish religion, the Jewish way of life from an early age, probably learning it at somewhat at home and in a local synagogue. But when he turned 13, he would have been sent to Jerusalem to study under the most famous rabbi. His name was Gamaliel. Some suggest that he was the grandson of Hillel. You probably heard the word Hillel before. So Gamaliel most likely was a grandson of Hillel coming from Babylonia. Gamaliel, in the New Testament and outside the New Testament, is described as a man who was wise, respected, a composed teacher. And so Paul would have spent six, uh, six, five to six years studying with him. He is described as a humble man, a kind-spirited individual, serving those who are inferior to him, courageous and it says, the most illustrious in the school of Hillel. He was a revered teacher. Acts 5, verse 38 and 39, talk about Gamaliel. It's in the context of the initial persecutions of the first Christians. 
And as the Jewish people, the Sanhedrin, the Jewish leaders, that is, the Sanhedrin is trying to figure out what to do with this new Jewish sect, the followers of the way, Gamaliel speaks up, and this is what he says. Speaking of the Christians, this plan or action, if it's of man, it will be overthrown. But if it's of God, you will not be able to overthrow it. Or else you may even be found fighting against God. That's in Acts 5. This was Paul's teacher. As he studied with him, Gamaliel would have been either walking through the city and his students, probably about 100 students, would have followed him through the city, listening and then repeating what he was teaching them. It was memory through repetition. That was the plan. Or at times he would sit down at an elevated spot as his students would kind of circle around him as he was teaching them the law. Now we know from some history, that there's another famous individual named Shimei, Shimei. And those two schools kind of competed like Harvard and Yale, let's put it that way. And Hillel was a little bit more liberal. We know some of that because Paul quotes Greek writings in his, in his uh, letters. For example, he quotes from a poem to Zeus, we are all his offspring, in Acts chapter 17. He quotes from a play, a Greek play, when he says, bad company corrupts good morals. He quotes from another individual, Epimenides, liars, uh, Cretans are liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. Now, those phrases were commonly known in the ancient world, but they do come from Greek writings, and so perhaps Hillel, being a little bit more open in his thinking to Hellenistic ideas, he might have taught Paul those ideas. He also taught him how to argue, how to use irony in his writing how to use the question and answer method in his argumentation, how to argue from the lesser to the greater. We have examples of all that in his writings. So when Paul is presented in Scripture, whether somebody else is talking about him or when he speaks autobiographically, Paul has a great heritage. He's a Pharisee. He comes from a famous city. He's well-educated. And at 20 years of age, he would have been stuck. Because to be influential in ancient Judaism, you had to be 30. He finishes his education with Gamaliel at about the age of 20, and he has to make a decision. And so he goes home back to Tarsus. Now, being a Pharisee, I want you to remember how the Pharisees are presented in the New Testament. Just consider one passage, Matthew 23. Do you remember the woe passage? Woe to you, Pharisees. All that Jesus says against the Pharisees has to apply to Paul. So just a sample of some of those statements. Well, to you Pharisees, they do deeds to be seen by others. They love the places of honor. They cross sea and land to make a single convert. And in doing so, they make him twice a child of hell. Woe to you blind guides, hypocrites, full of greed and self-indulgence. First clean the inside of the cup so that the outside may also become clean. You're like whitewashed tombs. You're full of bones of dead men and all kinds of filth. You snakes, you brood of vipers. Jesus' words against the Pharisees. All that is relevant to who Paul was. As he says, I'm a son of the Pharisees. He was a loyalist to Jewish law. About his time, there was about 6,000 
Pharisees in ancient Israel. They were respected by the people of the land because they spent more time with them than the Sadducees who became more political or the Essenes who were too radical. The Pharisees were kind of like the middle of the road theologically in regards to what they believed and taught. But this was Saul. He says in Acts 26 verse 5 that he was part of the strictest sect of our religion. I lived as a Pharisee. And he was so committed to Judaism, to Phariseeism, that in Galatians 1.14, he says, I advanced in Judaism beyond many among my people of the same age. I was far more zealous for the tradition of my ancestors. In other words, he was proud to be a Pharisee, and he was excelling as a Pharisee. He would have been the valedictorian. He would have gotten summa cum laude among the hundreds or hundred or so students that Gamaliel had. He would have spoken Greek, Aramaic, and Hebrew, perhaps even new Latin. He was a debater. He was a part teacher, part lawyer. He knew Jewish history, most likely Greek history, and literature. But at 20 years of age, even though he felt like he was ready to take on the world, as he describes himself in Galatians 1.14, he went back home. And that's probably when he picked up the trade of tent making working with his dad for about 10 years after finishing his education. But at 30, he was ready. He goes back to Jerusalem, and he begins his career as a Pharisee, as a faithful Jew. In Acts 26, verses 4 and 5, he says, All the Jews know about my manner of life from my youth up. In other words, his family was known, and people would have watched them, those who were connecting with them back in Tarsus and then back in Jerusalem, even when he was a 13-year-old until he was 20, studying under Gamaliel. He was a, an Orthodox Jew, if we can say it this way, completely kosher, completely committed to his religion. And now he fixed his gaze on the followers of the way. They were his target. And because of his beliefs that only Yahweh is to be worshipped, not someone named Jesus... He thought he was doing God's work as he was persecuting the Christians. In Acts chapter 8, verse 1, it does say that he was in hearty agreement with putting Stephen to death. On that day, a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. Saul began ravaging the church, entering house after house, and dragging off men and women as he would put them into prison. Do you remember what Gamaliel said about the Christians in Acts 5? Leave them alone, right? That's the bottom line message. Leave them alone. You're either going to fight God or it's gonna, just going to go by the way, on its way. He went exactly the opposite direction of his mentor and his revered teacher. Chapter 9 says, Saul still breathing threats, And murder against the disciples of the Lord went to the high priest and asked for letters from him to the synagogues at Damascus. So if he found any belonging to the way, both men and women, he may bring them bound to Jerusalem. When he defends himself in Acts 22, he says, I persecuted this way to death, binding and putting both men and women into prisons, as also the high priest and all the council of the elders can testify. From them I also received letters to the brethren and started for Damascus in order to bring even more who were there to Jerusalem as prisoners to be punished in chapter 26. So then I thought myself that I had to do many hostile things to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. 
And this is what I just did in Jerusalem. Not only did I lock them up, having received authority from the chief priests, but also when they were being put to death, I cast my vote against them. And as, a, as I punished them, often in all the synagogues, I tried to force them to blaspheme. And being furiously enraged at them, I kept pursuing them even to foreign cities, while so engaged as I was journeying to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. That's Paul putting all those passages together, and there's others in the New Testament. Gives you the magnitude of his commitment and his hatred for the Christians. He was happy to kill them. Actually, that sounds a lot like the persecution Christians experience in communist countries. Force them to blaspheme, recant, murdering them, whether it's today in China or in Africa or perhaps in the Soviet Union back in the day. Paul would have been an agent of the KGB because he hated the Christians so much because he was so committed to his religion. Paul's career as a Jew is the fulfillment of Jesus' prophecy in John 16. When he warns his disciples that they will be persecuted, in John 16, verse 2, Jesus says, An hour is coming when those who kill you will think that by doing so, they're offering worship to God. That's what Paul thought he was doing. He thought he was a faithful follower of Yahweh by killing Christians. And he becomes an international vigilante, a mercenary, a Texas Ranger crossing state lines looking for, the, for those who are the offenders. And he had the letters from the highest body of authority, the Sanhedrin, from the high priest. Locally, he got the chief priests engaged as well, the synagogue leaders and so on. But to be able to have the presidential endorsement to do this all over the Roman Empire tells you how respected he was, how famous he was, how competent he was at his job. The president isn't going to send the average student. He's sending the best of the best to get rid of the Christians. And that also gives us an insight into how hated hated the Christians were by the Jewish leadership. In chapter 9, when Paul is blinded and Ananias... um, is told to go and heal him, and Ananias pushes back on Jesus. Remember that? In chapter 9, verse 13, he says, Maybe you haven't heard. (laughs) But I heard, verse 13, about this man, how much harm he did to your name, to your saints in Jerusalem. He has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. He was reluctant to go help the enemy because he knew what Paul was doing up to that point. Once Paul became a Christian, he hated that part of his life. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 12, he says, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who strengthened me because he considered me faithful putting me into service even though I'm formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, a violent aggressor. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am chief. The context of I am the chief of sinners is blasphemer, persecutor, violent aggressor. He's reflecting on this part of his life. 
In 1 Corinthians 15.9, he says, I'm the least of the apostles, not fit to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church. That's his reflection as a believer. He was ashamed of those years. But he was excelling. In Philippians 3.6, he says, As regarding zeal for Judaism, I was a persecutor of the church. The language takes us back to Numbers 25, where Phineas is so zealous for the law of God that he finds a spear. And if you remember... He spears a Moabite woman and an Israelite because they were committing immorality. And that story became prominent during the time of Paul, Second Temple Judaism, where if you truly are zealous for the law of God, you should be willing to kill. And so Paul picks up this zeal, this, this euphoria that came with that ancient story and begins to apply it. And he becomes the poster child for faithfulness to God to the point of killing, if necessary. When you put all the vocabulary together in the New Testament about Paul's autobiographical statements about this period of his life, we find a man who is flogging Christians, arresting Christians, forcing them to recant, murdering Christians by way of lynch, uh, mob justice and some other forms as well, And in chapter 9 of Acts, verse 1, it says, Saul still breathing threats. The literal says, still breathing in threats. The idea is like a war horse. Breathing in, taking deep breaths for war. In other words, this was his oxygen. Killing Christians. He was breathing in this environment because he wanted to be the best of the best in fulfilling the Jewish law and murdering Christians. He was a hired gun. He was a mercenary. And you can see that Paul was not a person who had hobbies. He had obsessions. He was fixated on whatever he was going after. And we see that even more clearly once he becomes a Christian. Because after his radical conversion, he becomes a fanatic for Jesus Christ. And in chapter 9 of Acts, after his conversion, for the sake of time, you can read that on your own, he is saved, he is able to see again. Immediately, it says, he began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogues. The same synagogues he was going to drag Christians out of, find them, identify them, arrest them, and ultimately kill them. He's now going in there and preaching that he is the son of God. And all those who hear in him continue to be astounded. He's creating confusion. He was saying, is this not the one who in Jerusalem destroyed those that called on his name and who had come here for the purpose of bringing them bound before the chief priests? But Saul kept increasing in strength and confounding the Jews who lived at Damascus by proving that this one is the Messiah. And when many days had elapsed, the Jews plotted together to put him to death. But the plot became known to Saul. They were also watching the gates day and night so they may put him to death. This is how quickly he changed. He went from murdering to becoming the victim. His disciples took him by night and let him down through the wall, lowering him in a large basket. And so as we begin to shift in the story from the mercenary to Paul the missionary, as Paul describes himself in many epistles, 
uses the word apostle. Now, we have the very technical term apostle, the 12, disciple, uh, the 12 disciples, the 12 apostles of Jesus. We have that. But the word apostle as a verb, as a noun rather, is also related to what used to be called a cargo ship in the ancient times. And so the imagery could indicate that Paul viewed his life as a carrier of the cargo of the gospel. And if you are hired, say you have a business and you hire a cargo ship to bring your cargo from Rome to Athens, you expect that it's going to be delivered in one piece, faithfully. It was a very expensive business, too much risk, with pirates and also shipwrecks. And so those who took the risk became extremely wealthy as merchants. But the point of that business was to faithfully deliver the cargo that you were entrusted Paul viewed himself as somebody who took the cargo of the gospel from city to city to city to city, not messing with it, not altering it in any way, but simply, as he says in 1 Corinthians 4, being faithful as a steward. That's how he began to see himself. And he does this, as we see in Acts 9, immediately. He's now 35 years old. The year is about A.D. 35. So, he went from Jerusalem to Damascus for the sake of persecuting Christians, but now he's on the other side. Paul received a unique experience later as he goes to Arabia. The resurrected Christ appears only four times in the New Testament. He appears to Stephen in Acts 7. Obviously, we have the Gospels. But then to Paul in Acts 9, and then to John at Patmos in Revelation 1. It's a unique experience that Paul gets with the resurrected, the glorified Christ. And so he focuses immediately on the ministry that was entrusted to him. And so in Galatians 1, he says, God was pleased to reveal his son to me so that I may proclaim his a good, the good news among the Gentiles. I did not immediately consult with flesh and blood. In other words, I didn't go to some school of the apostles. Nor did I go to Jerusalem, to those who were the apostles before me. But I went to Arabia and returned once more to Damascus. So just quickly summarizing, he goes from Jerusalem to Damascus to persecute, gets saved. In Damascus, he starts preaching. There's immediate persecution. He's let down on the wall in a basket. He leaves. He goes to Arabia, spends three years with Jesus, being mentored by him personally. He comes back to Damascus for a season and then ends up going to Jerusalem. And that's when the disciples begin to spend some more time with him. And this is what happens when he ends up in Jerusalem and when he came to Jerusalem, he was trying to associate with the disciples. But they were all afraid of him, not believing that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and recounted to them how he had seen the Lord on the road. He had talked to him and how at Damascus he had spoken out boldly in the name of Jesus. So he was with them, moving about freely in Jerusalem, speaking out boldly in the name of the Lord. And he was talking and arguing with the Hellenistic Jews, but they were attempting to put him to death. But when the brothers learned of it, they brought him down to Caesarea, sent him away to Tarsus, about about freely, moving about freely in Jerusalem, speaking out boldly in the name of the Lord. So he is, sorry, that's a duplication. I apologize for that. But he is now faithfully presenting Christ to the Jewish people. That's where he begins. About five years or so pass from that initial point. Then he spends time, the three years also in addition to that. So we're now going from AD 35, his conversion, to AD 43. Eight years since his Conversion, and we land in Acts 11. In Acts 11, Paul is in Antioch. 
He spent some years evangelizing the cities we just talked about, and now he's in Antioch. Now, Antioch is a strategic city for the early Christians, but also in the Roman Empire. It's the third largest city in the Roman Empire. It has a population of about 500 to 800,000 people. It was a port city, therefore cosmopolitan. What's important about Antioch is Acts eleven twenty six. In Acts eleven twenty six, it says, Paul comes there, he spends a year with the church in Antioch, and the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. The year is about 43. If Jesus is crucified and resurrected in, 40, in 30, it's about a 13-year window until the Christians begin to be called Christians. Until then, they call themselves brothers, siblings, spiritual siblings. That's their self-identification. It's the outsiders who begin to call the followers of Jesus Christians. And you can understand the value that this, the term that was coined in Antioch would play for the rest of human history. You call yourself Christian. Let's hope the outsiders, when they look at your life, also call you Christian. But it started in the opposite order. For them, initially, this was a term of insult. It wasn't a positive term. It only appears three times in the New Testament. In Acts 26, 28, and then 1 Peter 4, 16. Ultimately, it would catch, uh, catch on. It was in the second century, Ignatius tells us, the bishop of Antioch, that Christians began to call themselves Christians over a hundred years later. Well, Paul is a part of that experience. A year of faithful preaching with the other followers of Jesus, and now the reputation becomes such that these are Christ followers. They're different than the other Jews. Now, what's happening in other parts of the Roman Empire in relation to Christians? Well, Peter just evangelized Cornelius back in chapter 10. James was just martyred by King Herod in Acts 12, or will be in Acts 12. There's also a famine in Jerusalem that begins to take place. And so you look at the end of chapter 11, and you see that the great famine in verse 28 causes the disciples to send Paul to Jerusalem with Barnabas in order to deliver some of the money to help those Christians in Jerusalem. The year is about 47, 48. They go and do their delivery, and they come back. And in chapter 13, we get into the first official missionary journey. From Acts 13 to 28, very end of the book, Paul is at the center of every single narrative, except for one. At the end of chapter 18, we have the introduction of Apollos, preacher, and, uh, and uh, he is very, he's very eloquent, it says in chapter 18, and that's the only five-verse section, paragraph, where Paul is not at the center of the narrative. The reason that Paul becomes at the center prior to him was Peter, is in order to fulfill Acts 1.8, that the gospel wouldn't be stuck in Jerusalem. Whether it, If God wanted it to go, he's going to bring some persecution to force it to spread, which is exactly what happened in chapter 8. 
And so the fulfillment of Acts 1.8, the gospel, or you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, even to the remotest part of the earth. That's Paul's focus. He says, I want to take the gospel where Christ has not been preached yet. And so that's why he becomes the focus of the entire book after chapter 13 to demonstrate that. So the screen in front of you is just the cities that were covered and the time period of the first missionary journey. There's lots to think about detail-wise, but what I want to focus on briefly is Paul and Barnabas, the first two missionaries being sent from Antioch in Acts 13 into the Roman world, and they take with him John Mark. John Mark comes from a prominent family. Back in Acts 12, when Peter was released from prison by an angel, he shows up at John Mark's house, his mom's house. You remember that? They were praying for him, and he shows up. The servant opens the door, shuts into his face again, and just thinking, there's no way he's actually out of prison, even though we're praying for it. But he shows up at that house. Most likely, John Mark comes from a relatively famous family in the Roman world. He's a cousin to Barnabas. Later, Peter would become John Mark's mentor, and we'll talk about what happened that caused that situation. 16 to 18 months is the length of the first missionary journey. And the strategy is quite predictable. They go into the local synagogue. They preach the gospel. Jesus is the Savior. There's commotion that takes place. Some believe, others reject, and sometimes you've got violent persecution taking place. Now, some of the more famous stories in Acts 13, you've got a magician. Elamis is his name. And so he's opposing the gospel on Cyprus. It's... Paul is trying to evangelize the proconsul, and so Paul blinds him. They show up in Lystra, and after some preaching, they are recognized by the people as Zeus and Hermes. Remember that story? And they want to offer sacrifices to them, and they stop him and say, no, 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 we're just people. We're bringing you the gospel. So after, this is an extreme change, right? They go from offering sacrifices to the gods to killing them, to stoning them, dragging them outside of Lystra, stoning them. They are revived. They go back into the city, preach some more. Then they go to Derby, 60 miles from Lystra. In Derby, something interesting takes place that shapes early Christianity forever. In verse 23, Acts 14, 23, it says they had appointed elders for them in every church. This is the first appointment of elders by Paul. Liberal scholars like to say that the pastoral epistles, 1st, 2nd Timothy, and Titus are written later, 2nd century. Because there is no way a movement like the Christian movement could become so organized, so formed, have the leadership structure so quickly. And so they push it into the second century. Here in Acts 14, what we see is that, no, from the very beginning, they had the same understanding of what a church is. There are elders in every church. That's what we practice here. So as you learn about other churches, they are going against the earliest Christian tradition. Yes, Acts 6 also talks about the apostles and deacons, but this is the first time we see somebody being appointed as an elder, and that shapes our understanding of ecclesiology to this day. After this, the end of the first missionary journey, they go to Jerusalem. Acts 15 is famous for the Jerusalem Council. We probably have heard or read about the original church councils in the 3rd and 4th century. I'm sorry, 4th and 5th century. 
actually goes into the 8th century. Let me clarify myself. Somebody's going to have to edit all that out. From the 4th to the 8th century, unless Nathan Buznitz fires me from the seminary for not understanding church history. Those are the ecumenical councils. Well, this is the first Christian meeting of the leadership. And the question they're trying to figure out is what it would do with the Old Testament. Do we follow it? Do we force the Gentiles who are new converts to, to Christianity? And really, it's still moving. It's still Jewish because most of the leaders, if not all the leaders are Jewish. How do we figure this out? And so they're trying to understand how do we apply the Old Testament to the Christians, the Gentile Christians. And in verse 29, they make a decision and say, okay, here's what we're going to ask the, Jewish, the Gentile Christians to do in regards to the Old Testament. They don't have to do everything that's written in the Old Testament, but please abstain from things sacrificed to idols, please abstain from blood, from things strangled, and from sexual immorality. And the apostles choose four men to deliver this message as they go back in the Roman Empire to the Gentile Christians. Saul, or Paul, Silas, who would become one of Paul's close associates, Barnabas, he would remain in Antioch until the year 50, and then go on a different journey, and John Mark. So let me just recap the first, I'm sorry, I didn't show you the map. So if you look at the center right, Antioch is the beginning of the journey, and then they kind of make their way to Cyprus, up to Perga, they go up to Asia, Antioch, and then they make their way down again. That's the first missionary journey, 16 to 18 months. That's the passage that covers it. Now, what is the recap of the first missionary journey? Well, in Damascus, going back to chapter 9, there's an assassination attempt, and he's driven out. In Jerusalem, there's another assassination attempt. In Salamis, he's opposed by Alamis. In Syria, Antioch, he's heckled by the Jews, he's driven out. In Iconium, he's heckled by the Jews, and there's an attempted at stoning. In Lystra, he's actually stoned. You can see that the gospel always brings opposition. It doesn't matter how smart you are as Paul was. It doesn't matter how eloquent you are as Paul was. It doesn't matter what name you used to have, your pre-Christian reputation, how influential, how connected you were to the high priest and the chief priest. None of that matters. If you preach the true gospel according to the first missionary journey, you will be persecuted. And then we go after the Jerusalem Council to the second missionary journey. The cities listed are the ones they cover in the years 50 to 52, just over a two-year period. And here's the map for the missionary journey that they begin. So they begin in Antioch again. You can kind of see that, center right, and then they go to the top and then come down. The passage is chapter 15, and what we see happening at the beginning of the second missionary journey is a fight. People just can't get along. Verse 36 says this, After some days, Paul said to Barnabas, Let's return and visit the brothers in every city in which we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they're doing. Barnabas wanted to take John called Mark, along with them as well. Remember, he's his cousin. But Paul kept insisting that they should not take him along because he deserted them in Pamphylia. That was two years ago. And had not gone back with them to the work. There occurred such a sharp disagreement that they separated from one another and Barnabas took Mark with him and went to Cyprus. Paul took Silas and left, being commissioned by the brothers 
to the being committed by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And he was traveling through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the brothers. We have to understand the severity of the disagreement. The first missionary journey included John Mark for a period. They got to Pamphylia, and then something happened. But when Paul, uh, when Mark, John Mark is described, he was their servant. He was their minister. He was a helper, like a personal assistant. He wasn't there looking for adventure. He was there to assist Paul and Barnabas in whatever way was needed. That's the term that's used to describe him. Barnabas, going back a little bit before that story, the first missionary journey starts, Barnabas is the first Christian friend that Paul has. Remember that. He vouches for him in chapter 9. He brings him into the fold and says, this man is trustworthy. Yes, he used to kill Christians, but now he's trustworthy. Well, that, your first, let's just call it your first disciple, your first mentor, you probably respect that individual to some degree greater than some other people that have shaped your life. Right? There's a unique relationship there with that first Christian friend. That's Paul and Barnabas. So something so severe had to take place that Paul says, two years later, there's no way I'm taking John Mark with me. He deserted us back in Pamphylia. So after this disagreement, they split. Thankfully, God uses the separation as a way to continue to spread the gospel. What happens to John Mark after this is he gets connected with Peter and then spends time with Peter in his ministry. And they become so close in that ministry partnership that there are only two relationships in the New Testament that are described as father-son. Paul and Timothy, Peter and Mark. At the end of 1 Peter 5, Peter calls him my son Mark. So you can see what started out negatively, a conflict. God used that to bring the gospel of Mark into existence. Because the gospel of Mark, according to tradition, is Peter's version of the story of Jesus. You've got Matthew the apostle, you've got John the apostle, and we have Peter's version in the gospel of Mark. Paul does ultimately forgive John Mark. Eleven years later, in Colossians 4, he accepts. He says to the Colossians, if he comes visits you, accept him. In Philemon 1.24, he says he is a fellow worker. Uh, but the greatest commendation is in 2 Timothy 4.11. Shortly before his death, Paul, writing to Timothy, he says, only Luke is with me. Everyone else deserted me. Bring Mark. I need him for ministry. So forgiveness took place, even if it took a long time. But the rift was severe back in Acts 15. Well, as they continue into their missionary journey, in chapter 16, after at the beginning point, they get to Lystra. And in Lystra, Paul replaces Mark with Timothy. He meets Timothy. Timothy is about 16 to 20 years of age at this point. And look at the reputation that he has. Verse 2. He was well spoken by the brothers. If you're a high school student here, it's possible to have such a reputation for godliness that you are well spoken by the brothers. The people in the church know you and they know your godly, godliness, your pursuit of holiness, and they talk about you in that way. This was Timothy. Somewhere between 16 to 20. We don't know exactly. But that's where they meet for the first time. And then ultimately he becomes his son in the faith. 
I also think there's a lesson for older Christians of discipleship. Yes, a rift happened and they parted ways, but as soon as possible, Paul found somebody else to disciple. And he brought him in. And he continued to move through the, through the uh, gospel ministry with him. The relationship became so close that Paul wrote two letters to him. No other individual gets that benefit. They co-authored six books together in the New Testament. He calls him my beloved, my faithful child, my fellow worker. Unique terms. In terms of affection and commitment and really in terms of affirmation. Well, in Acts 16, we're in Philippi after Lystra. The church in Philippi is the first church in Europe. If you have European heritage, thank Acts 16 for taking place because that's where it all begins. The first church in Europe, you know the story. Ultimately, they are arrested. There's an earthquake. The jailer gets saved. His household gets saved. Lydia gets saved. That's all in chapter 16. But the church in Philippi becomes one of the most dear churches to Paul. He visits them, he visits the church twice on his third missionary journey after this time. He will visit them again after he's released from prison in Acts 28. And we'll talk about that period of his life. He calls them brothers, he calls them beloved. They support him continuously in his ministry. The idea of patronage in the ancient Roman Empire was such that you had a, a wealthy individual supporting you in various activities. In the church, we have somebody like Gaius or Lydia. The Philippians became that way. Now, in 2 Corinthians 8, we find out that they're not wealthy. But out of their poverty, they begged to be participants in the gospel ministry financially. And they sent Epaphroditus to Paul in prison, giving him money. So they became a church that fully supported Paul, whether he's in prison or he's out. That is the relationship that is formed in Acts 16. Then we move to Thessalonica. In Thessalonica, we have the famous verse, uh, verse 6, and the famous statement, these men have upset the world. And for them, that meant the Roman Empire. That's the reputation now Paul is having with his associates in Thessalonica, one of the largest cities in the Roman Empire. It was the capital of all of Macedonia. It was one of the most important trade cities in all of Greece. Then they moved to Berea. You remember Berea? What's special about the Bereans? Daily, right? That's the reputation of the Bereans. So they go, to, in chapter 17 still, verse 11, they were noble-minded, more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica. Then he gets to chapter 17. We know chapter 17, why? What happens in chapter 17? Marsh Hill. The Areopagus takes place in, Matthew, in uh, chapter 17. This is, so just so you understand what you'll be looking at. So if you look at the, um, the blue, uh, you're right. There we go. You're right. So Mars Hill is lower than the top Acropolis area. And so Paul would have been in that area. That's the debate center in Athens. And they would be looking up at something like this. This would have been the top of the mountain. So that lower platform is Mars Hill. The high platform is the Acropolis. And so what Paul is doing there, we know the debate that takes place. He starts preaching the gospel to them that God is sovereign and that every single man needs to repent. That's what it would have taken place. Today it looks like this. Okay? The view from Mars Hill back onto the Acropolis. Now, 
They move after Mars Hill to chapter 18, and they get to Corinth. In the year AD 49, the Emperor Claudius expelled the Jews from Rome. The Roman historian Suetonius tells us that it was because there was arguments about a man named Crestus. Sounds like Christ, doesn't it? So in other words, most likely what's happening is the Jewish Christians and the Jews constantly argued about the Messiah in the city of Rome. And the Roman emperor heard about it, and there were riots, and they got so frustrated that the easiest solution was to just expel them all. One of those people or couples being expelled is Aquila and Priscilla. They go to Corinth. That's where they meet Paul. That's where they meet Apollos at the end of chapter 18. Aquila and Priscilla become a power couple in the first church. They started a church in Corinth. They started a church in Ephesus. They started a church in Rome. So after being exiled, they spent some time in those other cities, Ephesus and Corinth, and they get back to Rome later. We know that from Acts 18, from 1 Corinthians 16, from 2 Timothy 4, and from Romans 16. They end up mentoring Apollos as well, correcting his Christology a little bit because he wasn't fully informed. It was from Corinth that Paul writes First and Second Thessalonians. Prior to this, he wrote Galatians. Now these are the next letters that he would write. About a four to six month window between the first and second Thessalonians, and the year is A.D. 51. Okay, now we get to the second missionary journey, the end of it, and here's your recap. What happens in Philippi? They're beaten and arrested. Thessalonica, Jason's house is looted, he's beaten, Paul is driven out. In Berea, they're driven out. In Corinth, they're mocked in the synagogues. Corinth, they're arrested, brought to trial, and ultimately released. Again, the same pattern continues. Preaching solicits persecution. Now we get to the third missionary journey. And the third missionary journey starts in Acts chapter 18 and goes all the way into Acts chapter 21. And the beginning point is Ephesus. The first city is Antioch, but then quickly the ministry focuses on Ephesus. Ephesus was the third largest city in the Roman Empire, 400,000 in population, another port city. I hope you're getting the, the idea what Paul is focusing on. Port city, port city, port city, port city. Because he hopes that interaction between these new converts in doing business with other ships would allow the gospel to be taken by the next group of businessmen from city to city to city. Paul is focusing on booming metropolises in the Roman Empire. Certainly he goes to other towns, but he is uniquely focusing on places where the gospel would spread more easier. Well, the focus of Ephesus is this building, this beauty right here, the Temple of Artemis. It is three times the size of this building. That's how you can imagine it. Those columns are 100 feet tall. So it's twice as wide. It is uh, twice, two times as tall and about three times as long. Okay? This is a massive structure. It would have dominated Ephesus. And that's why there's a riot in Acts 19. Because that also was not just a temple to Artemis, it was the bank for much of the Roman Empire. And you know how people love their money. And so a riot breaks out in Acts 19 because it affects commerce business in that city. 
ultimately, the writers squell, and Paul spends three years in the city of Ephesus. He writes 1 Corinthians in the year 55 from Ephesus. He then moves on to Macedonia, where he writes 2 Corinthians the next year, the year 56. He then goes to Corinth. In Corinth, he writes Romans, also in the year 56. He then goes to Troas in chapter 20. And the famous story in Troas is Paul's preaching is so long that Eutychus falls asleep and falls out the window. And Paul doesn't stop. He keeps preaching. Let the dead guy, remember what Jesus says, let the dead bury the dead? So Paul just leaves him down there. Then he takes a break, comes down, revives him, and keeps preaching. All night. You know what time they finish? Between 5 and 7 a.m. It's a long sermon. And he's preaching in Troas to these individuals. Acts 20, verse 11 talks about this by the time he leaves. He goes from there to, on his goal, the goal is to get to Jerusalem, but he goes to Miletus. And in Miletus, we have that intimate story where the elders of Ephesus go to Miletus to meet with Paul, and Paul tells them, this was my ministry commitment. Night and day, with tears, I was preaching the gospel to you. And as I look at Acts 20, I kind of categorize ministry in four categories. He was preaching to them, he says. He was pastoring them, night and day, admonishing each one of you with tears. That's pastoral ministry. Counseling would be a part of that category. He was also protecting them. Wolves will come into your midst. And so there's an element of protection, and there's prayer at the end of the chapter. Pray, protect, preach, and pastor. And I think if you're a seminary guy, that's a good model to follow from Acts chapter 20. Paul arrives in Jerusalem in the year 57. He wants to get to the festival of the Pentecost. It's May 57 AD. And after brief interactions with private meetings with some apostles, he makes his way to the temple in order to offer the sacrifices, kind of do the Pentecost experience. There's a foiled assassination on his life pretty quickly, such that they have to move him to Caesarea. And he spends two years in prison in Caesarea. Felix, Festus, Herod Agrippa II, you remember those stories. And then in Acts 26... He says, I appeal to Caesar. In other words, the Jewish people have nothing that they can truly accuse me of. And so if 25.12 says, you've appealed to Caesar. 26.32 says, you have appealed to Caesar. To Caesar you will go. So now Paul is going from Caesarea to Rome. And he would spend two more years in the city of Rome under house arrest. Chapter 27 is the, the, the boat trip to Rome, and we know what happens there. And once he gets to Rome, most likely between 60 and 62, AD 60 and 62, he writes Ephesians, Colossians, Philemon, and Philippians, those four letters. But when you begin to look at 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus, those books don't fit into the history in the book of Acts. Some scholars like to force them in there, but from early church history, we find out that there actually was another missionary journey. Now, this was Paul's voyage to Rome. You can kind of see it starting down south, right? Jerusalem, then Caesarea, bottom right. And then they kind of make their way all the way through Crete. 
and then up to the city of Rome on the top left. The recap before we jump into the next journey. Again, in Ephesus, there's a riot. In Greece, he escapes an assassination plot. In Jerusalem, there's more hostility, imprisonment that leads to the Caesarean imprisonment, and then the Roman imprisonment. But that does take us to the fourth missionary journey. And the reason I say that, we have a couple passages in the New Testament there on the screen that indicate Paul's ambition. He wanted to make it to the farthest point in the Roman Empire. For him, in his knowledge, that was Spain. Spain, in the first century individual's mind, was kind of the farthest point, the western part. And so he says, I want to preach, or my ambition is to proclaim the gospel where Christ has not been named, so that I would not build on another man's foundation whenever I go to Spain. Remember, this is written in the year 56. For I hope passing through to see you and to be helped on my way there by you. So there's about a five-year window from the time he wrote this to the time that he actually is released from prison and is able to fulfill that goal. In 2 Timothy 4.7, before he is executed, he does say, I have finished the course. So New Testament scholars, some of them reconcile and say, most likely because his ambition was to get to the farthest point in the Roman Empire, he probably got there and therefore makes that statement in 2 Timothy chapter 4. But in addition to that, we have some evidence from the early church history. Eusebius is a historian of the early church. And this is what he writes. Festus was sent by Nero to be Felix's successor. So we're now back in Acts. Okay? This is before the Roman imprisonment. Under him, Paul was sent to Rome. So now we're about 60 or so. Luke, who wrote the Acts of the Apostles, brought this history to a close at this point, Acts 28. After stating that Paul spent two whole years at Rome as a prisoner at large and preached the word of God without restraint. Thus, after he had made his defense, it is said that the apostle was sent again upon the ministry of preaching and that upon coming to the same city a second time, he suffered martyrdom. So he was back in the city of Rome. In his imprisonment, he wrote his second epistle to Timothy. Okay, so that's the the end of his life. Then you look at Clement of Rome. Paul seven times was in bonds. He was exiled. He was stoned. He was heralded both in the east and in the west. He gained the noble fame of his faith. He taught righteousness to all the world, and when he had reached the limits of the West, that's Spain, in their mind, he gave his testimony before the rulers and thus passed from the world and was taken into the holy place, the greatest example of endurance. There's a few other quotes, but for now, just suffice it to say, it seems that Paul was released after Acts 28, year 62 or so, and then he begins another journey in the Roman Empire before he's rearrested. So this is one possible reconstruction of the evidence in the New Testament, and then, as I just read, from the early church history, helping us understand what Paul did as he continued to travel after his release. So, because in Philippians he says, I can't wait to come and see you. Most likely, the first stop would have been Philippi. And so he goes there, spends some time with them, year 62 again, Then he would have gone to the Lycus Valley. And then that's close to Ephesus, so he goes to Ephesus. In 1 Timothy 1.3, he tells Timothy to stay in Ephesus. And then he travels to Macedonia on his own. Then some indicate that he probably planted the churches in Revelation 2 and 3 in this time period. Not all of them, because some of them were already planted, so you can see the list. Uh, 65 to 66. He plants those churches. 
He writes 1 Timothy at that point. Then he goes to Spain. From Spain, he goes to those other cities. There he writes Titus, the book of Titus, because there's an indication in Titus 3.12 that he intends to send Tychicus to replace Titus. And so he hands him the letter of Titus, Tychicus, as the delivery boy, but also as the replacement for Titus. So they can meet in Nicopolis, Paul and Titus. So there's two options. It could be 63 AD, before Spain, or Titus could be after Spain. So it's really hard to be dogmatic about that, but you have one or two options. So you can move Titus above Spain or keep it below Spain. End of the day, it's in that time period, those few years. Well, he then ends up going back to Asia Minor. He ends up going to Greece. Guess who else is in Greece at this time? Nero. Back in AD 64, so we're in AD 66, 67. Back in AD 64, Nero in July of that year sets the city of Rome on fire. Seven of 12 districts of the city of Rome are burned, significantly burned. The people are upset that their houses got burned because he wants to build himself what's called the Domus Aurea, the golden house. He wants to have this massive mansion in the city of Rome. You can go visit it. He actually did that. It's there to this day, obviously remnants of it, close to the Colosseum. So the people are upset. That is the kind of the citywide persecution of Christians, AD 64, which is what I believe forced the Christians to scatter from Rome to Asia Minor, and that's what prompts for Peter to be written when he calls them exiles, and they're in Asia Minor when they receive that letter. So I think it all happens in AD 64. Well, Nero blames the Christians. By this point, Nero is crazy. He's gone mad. The last five years of his uh, imperial reign were extremely chaotic. He's beginning to assassinate people like his own tutors, family members, and so on. And he fancies himself a musician. Uh, And so he decides to travel the empire to perform. And so he gets to Greece to perform. And it's the same time that Paul is there. And they bump into each other. Not literally. Maybe, I don't know. Maybe he went to one of his performances. Who knows? Um, But they are there. And so tradition says that he is rearrested under Nero's influence. He's sent back to Rome. And that takes us into 67, 68. Tradition says that he spends nine months in prison in Rome before he becomes the martyr. He is put into prison called the Mamertine prison. Just steps away from the Colosseum, a few steps away from the Roman Forum. I've been there a couple times. And inside, and you can, it's hard to tell, but there are some famous prisoners. This goes back to BC days. It was a famous Roman prison. Uh, holding very famous prisoners. This is the inside of the prison. And there's another picture for you inside the prison. So most likely, Peter and Paul were in prison at the same time in this prison. Paul, uh, Peter would have been executed first, crucified upside down, and then Paul later. The reason I think so is because when Paul says in First Timothy or 2 Timothy, only Luke is with me, Peter would have been with him until execution. And if you compare 2 Peter with 2 Timothy, the final two letters, Peter and Paul's, there's quite a bit of thematic overlap. Just pay attention to some of that next time you read them, and you can see that they're probably chatting in prison, talking about, what are you going to say in your last will and testament? What are you going to say in your last will and testament? And what they're doing is they're reminding you 
Paul says to Timothy, I will remind you, remember where you came from. Preach the gospel, no matter the consequences. Always ready. Remember those verses? Peter says it three times. I will keep reminding you as long as I'm alive. So there's a few other elements that overlap as well. But I think they are in prison together in Rome. That's what tradition says. And after this, he is executed just outside the city of Rome. Tradition says on the Ostian Way, about 14 miles away, just west of the city of Rome. He is beheaded because he's a Roman citizen, and therefore crucifixion was reserved for the worst of the worst and foreigners. And because he was a citizen, he would have been beheaded instead, unlike Peter, just shortly before him. Well, as we kind of get to the conclusion of the story, I'd like to give you a few lessons that hopefully will make this a little bit more than just a history lesson. The first thing that we should consider is Paul as a missionary. Paul was a missionary after his conversion, and his strategy was the same everywhere he went. He goes into a strategic city, mostly port cities, cosmopolitan towns, and he preaches the gospel because it could be the fastest way to spread the gospel in the Roman Empire. He believed in the multiplication factor. Get it out there, and hopefully it will spread faster. He went to synagogues first. He believed, although he was the the apostle to the Gentiles, as he calls himself in Ephesians 3, for example, he never gave up on the Jewish people. In Romans 9.3, he says, I'd give up my own salvation if it meant the salvation of the nation of Israel. That's how committed he was in the year 56 or so to the salvation of his people. And so he would enter the synagogues and try to convert them first. And then in Acts 13, it says, when they reject him, the Gentiles are rejoicing. Remember that, the end of chapter 13? So he, he is the, the, the apostle to the Gentiles, but never giving up hope that his people could also be saved. You also see him partnering with people. As I said earlier, there's about 100 names or individuals associated with Paul in the New Testament. He did not do ministry alone. There are up to eight people who travel with him on these journeys. He's discipling, he's mentoring, he's investing in individuals, in couples like Achille and Priscilla. He's constantly engaged in the lives of the people. He's preaching day and night. He's weeping with them. He says, I'm in pain, childbirth pains, Galatians 4, uh, 19, until Christ is formed in you. In other words, he is truly feeling the burden for the people that have been entrusted to his care by, the, by God. And as you look at your own Christian life, if you have spiritual influence, I hope that's how you look at those people. That God has entrusted these individuals to you. They are souls, eternal souls. And we get the privilege to shape them into Christ's likeness as they exist forever. Paul was a discipler. Of individuals. He says in 2 Corinthians eleven twenty eight. after listing all the physical persecution that he endured, you know those passages, beaten multiple times, imprisoned, shipwrecked, and all that, he says, there's also the daily pressure on me of concern for all the churches. Who's weak without me being weak? Who's made to stumble without my burning concern? So as we do ministry together, if you see a person potentially stumbling, I hope you are concerned and you'll step in and actually warn if necessary and pull them closer to Christ. 
And so his motto was, 2 Corinthians 12, 15, I will most gladly spend and be fully spent for your souls. That's the commitment he had. And in response, people sacrificed. Priscilla and Aquila, it says they risked their lives for him in Romans 16. Epaphroditus almost died trying to serve Paul. Philippians 2 says this. So there is a reciprocal benefit. You invest into people, they will love you and sacrifice for you and be loyal to you in the ministry context. And no matter how costly it was for Paul, he says in Philippians 2.17, even if I'm being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice. And I share my joy with you all. You also rejoice in the same way and share your joy with me. Four times the idea of joy is mentioned in two verses because for him ministry was joyful. And he suffered as a missionary, strategically going into cities, disciple maker, and he suffered. Back when Ananias opposed Jesus, didn't want to heal Paul back in Acts 9, Jesus says to him, I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. That was going to be established from the very beginning. He was going to be a deci- an apostle who would suffer. Colossians 1.24, he says, I rejoice in my suffering for your sake. He understood that that was his burden to carry. And he never forgot that at one point, he inflicted the suffering. And so he was the recipient of that. Paul is a missionary. That's his legacy. Secondly, Paul is a theologian. Paul is a theologian. Paul, as I said before, wrote, uh, well, let me get there in a second. Paul is a theologian. He crafts new language in the New Testament that was absent in the ancient religious groups, the language of family. Brother, sister, father, mother, the way he viewed himself in relationship to other Christians or the, the way he viewed other believers, it was a sibling kind of relationship. And so Paul infuses his letters with that language because he saw the church as a family of God. You remember John 1, 12, and 13. To those who believed in his name, he gave them the right to become children of God. From the very beginning, the intent by God, by Jesus, was to create a family dynamic. A spiritual family with God as a father. Jesus Christ is an older, older sibling. Hebrews 2 talks about that. He brings us into glory. And so Paul picks up on this idea, and he says, this is how you're to view each other. You are a family of God. Instead of thinking, I'm a member of Grace Church, I'm a member of this Bible study, this fellowship group, we are actually all part of the same family. Therefore, we have obligations to one another, to serve one another, to love one another, to warn one another, to help one another when necessary. There are obligations that come with being a family member. So Paul talks about all that in his letters. And finally, Paul is an author. Paul wrote 13 of 27 letters, perhaps 14 of 27 letters, more than any other individual. And he contributed to the reputation that Christianity had in the first, second, third century and beyond as a bookish religion. Bookish religion. What that means is that Christians were at the forefront of literacy in the ancient world. Back in the day, you had scrolls. You can see a comparison there on the right. is a scroll, typical scroll that we have, Dead Sea Scrolls, for example. On the left is a codex. The difference is that now you have leaflets that are stacked upon each other, and ultimately we get the book, our version of the book. 
This is the precursor to the book. It's called The Codex. And one author says reading, writing, copying, and dissemination of texts had a major place, a prominence in early Christianity, such that except for ancient Jewish circles was unusual for religious groups in the Roman era. The Christians did not invent the Codex, but they popularized it. And so they, made, they helped the book become the book. 95% of non-Christian texts in the first two centuries were on a scroll. From the same period, 75% of Christian texts are on a codex. So you can see them switching into a new invention and popularizing their writings through the codex. Now, there are multiple reasons for that. One is that Christians wrote long books. For example, Cicero, his longest letter is 2,500 words. Okay? Paul's letters are two to, three, two to three times that size. Romans, for example, it's not crazy long. I mean, Acts, look, Acts is way longer. 7,100 words, nearly three times. The average letter in the ancient world was 87 words. Paul's shortest letter, Philemon, is four times that size, 395 words. So in other words, Christians wrote longer books. And so they had to have a different invention to be able to accommodate those needs. The Gospels, for example, so remember, Cicero, his longest letter is 2,500 words. The Gospel of Mark, the shortest, is 11,000. That's more than four times. John is 15,000. Matthew is 19,000. Luke Acts together is 38,000 words. That's the difference. Christians were writers. They were authors. This isn't just Paul. We're talking about the New Testament writings and beyond. And remember this. Christians did not do this because they were super wealthy. They just sat at home and contemplated life, philosophized, theologized. They were traveling to church plant. They were imprisoned. They were preaching the gospel in open places and synagogues. They were busy doing ministry and found time to write books. One of the stories, it comes from Ignatius in the beginning of the second century, who writes 10 letters just on his road trip from Antioch to Rome for his execution. He's writing books when he is under Roman prison, uh, arrest, 10 letters he wrote in the journey. Christians invested into writing. Why? Because they were all about equipping, edifying, encouraging, and educating the saints. These weren't just, hey, how's it going? Did you see that movie? Pretty cool, huh? Take care. You don't see that in the New Testament or beyond. You see theology. You see quotations from the Old Testament. You see scripture being used to do what I just said, edify, equip, encourage, and educate the saints. So they write theological treatises, personal letters, sermons, apologetical works, gospels, letters to churches, church polity, apocalyptic works, hymns, martyr stories, historical works, and deep exegetical works. Christianity revolutionized the Roman world in that regard. They popularized the Codex, they wrote extensive works, and Paul was a contributor to this new movement that made literacy be at the forefront of how they would spread the gospel to the world. I hope that encourages, encourages you to at least read a book. <laughs> That's why we have a bookstore here. That's why our pastor constantly talks about books. Because we want believers in our lives to be helped by Scripture as put into publication. So as you consider Paul's life, 
you go from a mercenary to a martyr, a zealot, a fanatic in the first phase of his life, and a zealot and a fanatic all the way till his death. What drove him in that second part of his life? After 30 years of ministry, I would say these verses perfectly explain Paul's devotion. I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. We have our ambition, whether absent or at home, to be pleasing to him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. We proclaim him, admonishing every man, teaching every man with all wisdom, so that we may present every man complete in Christ. And for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And I think that's the lesson. He was zealous as a missionary, ultimately unto martyrdom, because of that simple statement. For me to live is Christ. And I think if there's any lesson, it's that. Make that your ambition as a Christian, wherever you may be. Let's pray for that. Lord God, we are thankful for the life of Paul. Thank you for showing us that nobody is beyond redemption. And that you will take the harshest unbeliever to your gospel and transform him and make him one of the greatest pillars of the church. We know he wasn't perfect. We know that he had regrets. We know that he lived a life that was to the utmost to your glory. Give us that same drive and ambition. We do sin. and Lead us to repentance, to true, genuine repentance from our sins. And help us to live a life that demonstrates that for me, to live is Christ. Lord God, give us the power that we need with the sustaining grace of the Holy Spirit to accomplish this every single day until we see you face to face. Amen.